This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, trust in the news has slumped overseas in recent years against the backdrop of political polarisation and this past year, the chaos of COVID-19. But what about here in New Zealand? New research has picked out the outlets we say we trust and asked why. Several are going to get a very clear message that consumers here really don't like what they're doing. Also, cheap and quick polls are pretty popular with the media these days. Indeed, some media do their own and even turn the results into news, claiming they represent public opinion. 51% people are angry. Um, half the, which half I... the country. <laughs> so this week, the results of MediaWatch's exclusive poll. We asked our Twitter followers, should media be barred from reporting unscientific social media polls as if they're a real measure of public opinion? And an expert tells us if our results mean anything at all. But first, the deal being done between rugby and big money in the US this week has sparked some strong reactions in our media. Chelsea soon joined them. By bedtime, all six English clubs are out and Ed Woodward is leaving Manchester United. Wednesday morning, Atletico Madrid and Inter announce their withdrawal. Juventus's Agnelli declares the project cannot proceed. From start to finish, 72 hours, the lifespan of the Super League. That was the BBC's Connor McNamara summing up in 72 breathless seconds what happened in 72 hours to collapse the plan for a European Super League of football. As we heard on Media Watch last weekend, the owners of the world's biggest football clubs suddenly announced they'd agreed to form a new Super League just for themselves. They said it was the only way to safeguard the future of the sport at the elite level. And they were backed by billions from a US merchant bank, JP Morgan Chase. But when their own fans turned against their own clubs, it was all over with three days. And it wasn't just the fans who revolted. Former big-name players with a big profile in the media laid into it as well, forcing grovelling apologies from owners like Liverpool FC's Boston-based boss, John W. Henry. Again, I'm sorry, and I alone am responsible for the unnecessary negativity brought forward over the past couple of days. It's something I won't forget and shows the power that fans have today and will rightly continue Though when the billionaire founder of Spotify, Andrew Eck, tried to take over one of these shamed clubs this week, London's Arsenal FC, the fans didn't take to the streets with banners telling him and his money to Eck off. How come? Well, partly because he had some former and fondly remembered Arsenal players on board in advance. And whether it's the owners, the fans or the players who call the shots these days has been a big issue in the media here lately, ever since the US investment company Silver Lake offered almost $400 million for a stake in the New Zealand rugby commercial rights, putting them offside with their own players. Last week, the Herald writer Chris Keel wondered if players, ex-players and coaches here would speak out as strongly as the ones in the UK if a new investor tried to Americanise the All Blacks. And in the NBR last Wednesday, former NZME and Fairfax sports editor Trevor McEwen, who's also a former New Zealand rugby executive, warned rugby here to look at what happened in Europe. He pointed out that Silver Lake's big goal might not just be more All Blacks games, but also a new digital platform to sell live streams of them all around the world. What happens if Silver Lake decide the All Blacks need to play the US on Christmas Day in New York and in Tokyo on New Year's Day? And a new $100 million jersey sponsorship deal is contingent on New Zealand rugby agreeing. Well, the money would talk, you suspect, and many in the media have made sure that everyone knows what they reckon about all this too. Earlier this month, Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB backed the deal like this. Silver Lake 4. I mean, are we looking a gift horse in the mouth here? Half a billion into a sport, 
desperate for money, the ability to revolutionise the game and income streams, and allegedly the Players Association holds the cards. What's wrong with this picture? But it is a bit more complicated than that 10-second take and comedy sound effect. Last weekend on the same station, Jack Tame fretted about this. Less is more. I don't want to be bombarded by games and teams with players whom I've never heard of. But under the headline, Please Don't Sell Rugby to a Mob of Greedy US Billionaires, Stuff Sports columnist Mark Reason reckoned Silver Lake will want the All Blacks on an endless loop against England, but not Tonga, Samoa or Fiji. On Thursday, before the provincial unions were due to vote on this deal, Corin Dan asked the AUT's sports management expert Richard Wright this question. Uh, and given what you know as an expert on private equity companies in sport, should we do it? When I say we, uh, the All Blacks. New Zealand rugby need, need investment. I think that's everybody has come to the agreement that New Zealand rugby needs investment. And Corin Dan seemed to realise almost as soon as he'd said it there that there is no we. This is the rugby union's business and New Zealand rugby is more than just the All Blacks. But after the provincial unions all voted to take the money on Thursday, sports writer Gregor Paul said the opposite in the comment for the Herald. Every dollar the All Blacks have ever earned ultimately comes from the wallet of hard-working Kiwis, be it in the form of a match ticket, replica jerseys or a TV subscription. It is the farms, freezing works and factories that are the true owners of the All Blacks. But spending money on sports merchandise and entertainment doesn't give you a stake in any team or sport anywhere in the world in any sport. And that wasn't the point anyway, according to the AUT's Richard Wright. On Morning Report, he said New Zealanders, supposedly rugby mad, weren't actually spending enough on modern rugby. They need that investment because other people are not investing as much as they used to do in rugby. And that includes New Zealanders, you know, by a huge state. And in the Stuff Papers, Mark Reason posed another emotional question. If the game sells out to Silver Lake on Thursday, how will New Zealand rugby protect the integrity of the All Blacks and the Silver Fern and the Haka? Which was on Lisa Owen's mind the day before the vote, talking to New Zealand rugby chair Brent Impey on RNZ's Checkpoint. The Haka, the Silver Fern, the All Blacks jersey. Will um, New Zealand rugby retain complete control of them. Can you ring fence that in this deal and remain in control of those brands and that, well, cultural tonga? Answer, yes. And Brent Impey was also pretty unequivocal about this. It, it, it is an absolute no-brainer, this deal. It is, it is one of the largest uh, private equity deals in sport in the history of sport. And as I said to the players on a, on a uh, Zoom call on Thursday night, if this deal doesn't proceed because of the stance taken by the Players Association. It'll be the biggest own goal in the history of New Zealand sport, and I believe that. And in the end, the provincial rugby union leaders all voted with one mind the next day. But it's not as if the All Blacks and their supposed Taonga are untainted by US dollars already. For the past 10 years, the All Blacks and other New Zealand representative sides have been walking, tackling and scrummaging billboards for the US insurer AIG, which reminds most Americans of the GFC and not rugby. The too-big-to-fail outfit was bailed out by the Federal Reserve with more than 180 billion US dollars in 2008. But since 2011, hundreds of millions from that sponsorship deal have gone to New Zealand rugby. On RNZ's Extra Time podcast, player Alice Soper pointed out that that didn't all just go to the All Blacks and the top tier of the men's game.
the AIG deal was a big part of uh, saving the Black Fern 15s program. There was a conversation back in 2011 about scrapping 15s for the Black Ferns altogether. And it was when AIG came on and signed that deal that that's basically saved our bacon. So could it be that this uh, is also, you know, I know I've seen the spin. I've seen them talking about how this is going to be the difference of whether we have a super rugby competition or not. Um, I hear that that's happening regardless um, of this deal, but hey, wouldn't it be good to get some women paid? And the prospect of men and women getting paid with Silver Lake's money, coupled with the promise of cash for a game rotting at the grassroots and suffering a post-COVID slump, will now pump up the pressure on the players to agree to the deal. They are now the only stumbling block, and they'll surely be scapegoated in the media if the deal fails, because they're being portrayed as either too conservative or too greedy, or both, by those who see rugby as too big to fail and now needing big American investment to bail it out. As we saw at the time, the mob contained an extraordinary array of individuals and causes, ranging from the wild to the deeply menacing. That was ITV's Robert Moore on News Hub at 6 last Monday, reporting on the long arm of US law enforcement still tracking down people in that mob which invaded and trashed the Capitol building back in January. And as he said there, the mob members had many different reasons for taking direct action, ones that many of them couldn't articulate all that clearly. But for many, a hatred of politicians was part of it and the media. When Robert Moore travelled to the other side of the US to talk to one man who took part and was recently raided by the FBI, he told Robert Moore this. He blames the media for creating the storm. The fact that the media is trying to spin this like this was some big insurrection is just completely false. We still believe in freedom and we believe in Trump. But many in the media actually believe in freedom too. Indeed, the idea of a fourth estate is to backstop it as part of genuine democracy. But of course, the likes of David Medina and a significant number of other Americans don't see it that way these days. Every year recently, the Edelman Trust Barometer has recorded declines in trust for all sources of general news and information. And this year, it found that worldwide, six out of ten people believe that journalists intentionally try to mislead people by reporting things that they know to be false, and that most news organisations are actually more concerned with supporting a political position than informing the public. Well, here in New Zealand, we don't have that sort of extremism and that degree of polarisation, or at least not as much of it, as things stand. But it seems respect for our media and for our journalists isn't what it once was. Last August, Research NZ surveyed people about which professionals they trust, and on RNZ's Sunday morning, Research New Zealand's Emmanuel Calafatelis told Jim Mora only one in three of these people said they trusted people who work for our government, and then... How about journalists? Oh, I wanted to avoid that, Jim. Um, Sorry, gracious of you. Okay, well, members of parliament, local council members were at 22, and unfortunately journalists were at 23. Okay. Place from the bottom. So, uh, journalists, local council members, members of the parliament, they are the scapegoats for uh, a lot of our unhappiness. Bit of a bummer for our journalists and editors, less trusted than public servants or politicians that they say they hold to account. 
For the past three years, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, based in the UK, has also studied a worrying lack of trust in news around the world. Its Trust in News project is backed with more than $6 million from Facebook, the company which is blamed more than any other for actually allowing fake news to flourish and spread in the first place. And you'd think they could have saved their money. Surely, if people don't trust the news then just make sure you give them more reliable news that they can use when they need it and where they can find it. But it's a bit more complicated than that. Last week, another piece of Reuters Institute research on trust in news said people's trust wasn't actually based on things that are important to reporters and editors, like editorial standards and journalistic practices. The Institute interviewed people in Brazil... India, the UK and the US, and concluded that ill-defined impressions of the reputations of news providers and how the news looks and feels was actually more influential. And talking on 9 to noon last Tuesday, Dr Atakohu Middleton from the Auckland University of Technology told Catherine Ryan that this is a problem for our news providers. They tended to focus on the surface stuff as signals of quality and reliability. And to me, that suggests that maybe we need to educate more education in schools about how the news is actually produced, what it means to gather news, and that maybe news outlets need to tie their marketing to some sort of promotional education on how news gathering actually works. The main annual Reuters Institute news report for 2020 found overall trust in news was at its lowest point since it started asking about it in 2016. Only 38% of those surveyed in 40 countries worldwide trusted most of the news most of the time, and fewer half of the respondents, 46%, trusted the news they consumed themselves. Now, New Zealand isn't one of those 40 countries, but last year the AUT's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy used the Reuters Institute survey as a model for their own survey on trust in news here, which was conducted by Horizon Research. It found that trust here was higher. More than half of respondents here said that they can trust most of the news most of the time. And almost two-thirds of those surveyed a year ago said they trust the news they personally consume. And they were more likely than those that the Reuters Institute surveyed overseas to be more sceptical about news they found from social media and online search engines. But that was all released in April last year. And, as we all know, there's been the COVID crisis, during which the demand and supply of news and comments spiked. And there was also a huge volume of news about Trump before and after the US election. Not to mention an election here, which, for the first time, featured candidates and political parties who were practically founded on fake news and misinformation about COVID-19, immigration, technology and many other things. So has all this then, in the past 12 months, dented Kiwi's trust in the media further, or not? And ahead of the report's release this week, the AUT's Dr Atakohu Middleton, formerly a journalist at the New Zealand Herald, told Catherine Ryan this on 9 to noon. So what I can say is that it will tell us whether our trust in news has risen or eroded compared to last year's report, and why. Now, the report will also tell us how COVID-19 has affected our trust in the news and which news brands in Aotearoa are the most trusted. Now, some news media outlets on Thursday will be delighted at their rating, but several, several are going to get a very clear message that consumers here really don't like what they're doing. So, what was that message about trust and who in our media needs to get it? I asked the lead authors of the report, Dr Greg Treadwell and Dr Maria Melilati, but first I asked them, what do we really learn from asking Kiwis about trust in news? 
Trust is fundamental element of the journalism. We don't know how actually to define it exactly, how to measure it. So it's not easy concept at all. But I think it's in an international setting, it's good to know that where we sit with the trust and trust in news in general. And remember that the trust issue is related also to the business models of the, the news outlets. If the people are willing to pay for the news, they pay for those who they know and they trust and those trusted brands. Comparing it internationally is really important. And Greg, your colleague, uh, Dr. Atakuhu Middleton from AUT, was on 9 to noon early this week talking about um, a Reuters survey of four countries, people's opinions on trust and which media they trust and which they don't, are often uh, depend upon what, what they call the ill-defined perceptions. What can we do with this? If It's almost that annoying area, isn't it, where you know, often have political journalists saying, oh, look, perception of the voters is reality, uh, even mm-hmm. if it's not true. You know, We're in that kind of territory, are we? Yeah, I think so. And if we consider the audience has agency, if you like, at the level of choosing uh, news brands, of also deciding how much of their day they're going to spend consuming news, even if they don't really understand what they trust or why they trust it, um, what they say is then important because if they have that choice, you know, whether they're making choices on good information or bad, they're still making those choices. So trust at a level, uh, at a fundamental level, um, is measured in what people say about what they trust. But if we don't start measuring trust at a base level, at a fundamental level, according to what the audience tells us they trust, then we don't have anywhere to start. And uh, uh, with this report this year, um, we've actually asked some some qualitative questions, if you like, getting people not just to tick the brand they like the most, but give us some comments about how they feel about news and stuff. Uh, and and one of the really interesting things within that is that they do have an idea of what they don't trust. Uh, and, and that is uh, the, the blurring of lines between comment and factual reporting. And that is something that again and again, we've known it anecdotally for a long time, but now we have some research to back that up, that people don't trust news organisations if they can't see a clear distinction between comment and fact. So uh, at one level, the audience kind of does know what it's doing. One big issue which has cropped up, and this is an issue for the media and trust worldwide that's, of course, reporting of the COVID crisis. The finding 62% of people said mainstream media was the best source of information, news and information about the crisis. Only 12 saying social media was the best or first place to go. Does that result give you uh, comfort? They're prepared to trust what they see in mainstream news media. That is really, you know, solid figure and good figure. And if you look the internationally, the trust in general in news uh, in New Zealand is still high in uh, when compared to the international average. So uh, 48% of the New Zealanders uh, trust news in general. But on the other hand, if you turn it around, 52% of the New Zealanders don't trust the news. So there is a problem uh, if you look at it that way. Yeah, indeed. Let's let's look at that. The the findings, I guess, compared to your first survey. So, a year ago, the people who said they trust the news essentially fifty three percent. This time, forty eight. So, as you say, they're fifty two percent, a kind of majority, saying they do lack trust. Uh, the news that they choose to use, this is slightly different. So, a year ago, sixty two percent said yes, they have good faith that the news that they have chosen is trustworthy. This time round, a seven percent fall, fifty five percent were prepared to say that. These are bigger drops, aren't they, than um, in the Reuters survey across all 40 countries uh, averaged out. Is, is that a surprise or a concern for you? 
I'm not surprised that the trust has gone down if I you know, compare, as I said, international setting. Trust uh, here is related, or the mistrust uh, is related to that, that the people are perceiving the news uh, as increasingly opinion, opinionated, biased and politicised. News is perceived more biased and, you know, uh, and uh, politicised. Yeah, so Greg, those four, so uh, 5% fewer people prepared to say they trust in news in general. When you talk about the 5% in general and the 7% in the news they consume personally, those drops uh, might be related to what was happening when we did our first survey. So as our first survey went out to New Zealanders asking which, you know, how much they trust the news and which brands and so on, was about the same time New Zealand went into its first serious lockdown in 2020. Now, trust is, uh, you know, there is some research that shows trust in the media is connected in some way to general trust in, if you like, the establishment. So obviously journalists don't want to see themselves as perceived as just part of the establishment. Indeed, they're there to challenge the very establishment. But it seems many readers these days see the news media as part of that authoritative establishment that, that tells them how the world is. And there's a resistance to that. So, uh, as, But as we went into lockdown last year, traffic on news websites, for example, quadrupled in some some instances as people realized the importance of you know just how accurate and reliable the information they needed on covid was so as we went into lockdown uh, and i think it's probably quite widely accepted that new zealanders had a, a great level of trust in the government last year and so if that idea of establishment extends to include the media there was probably a bit of a spike in trust in the media last year which might just help to account for that 5 and 7% drop uh, this year but as maria said you know generally while those might seem like quite large drops and i think some of that can be accounted to that the you know the fact the survey went out at the same time as people were desperate for really reliable information that possibly an element of the trust in the government was a, was being spread out to to trust in the media but um, uh, but overall we are just trending down like everybody else in if you like in the in the Western world at least which is you know ninety percent of what Reuters uh, survey so we 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 trust the news more than Australians do we trust the news quite a bit more than UK residents do but we trust the news quite a lot less than say some of those more comparable countries that we're often compared to like Finland and and Denmark and and those other sort of uh, liberal democracies in the north of, of Europe. Well, the Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy wasn't the only um, outfit to survey people's trust and their opinions about reporting of COVID. And in general, the Newspaper Publishers Association, or News Publishers Association, as it is now, also sur- surveyed people back in March, came up with some quite positive results that uh, people um, people appreciated and re- respected the coverage of the, the COVID crisis and so on. However, your survey is the only one, uh, isn't it, Maria, that actually looks at specific media outlets. The the Newspaper Publishers Association just look at the various media, radio, TV, online, and so on. Um, So what did you find when you looked at uh, the specific media outlets and asked people to identify their level of trust in those? Uh, The public broadcasters, uh, RNZ and TVNZ, came on the top. Uh, Their level of trust also went down a little bit. Um, Then we had News Hub and Maori Television were on a shared third place this year. Last year we didn't have a Maori Television, so we have actually uh, included Maori uh, uh, media outlets uh, in this year's uh, survey. And... uh, 
And then it was quite sort of, you know, the leveled, uh, the newsroom, uh, Herald stuff, uh, etc. So the public broadcasters uh, came uh, on top and also uh, they were on top, Radio New Zealand and TV and Z were on top on, for the COVID information as well. What was interesting in this survey, perhaps, is that there was a statistically significant drop for News Hub and, and Newstock, uh, Newstock ZB um, brands uh, compared to last year. And Greg, what might explain that? Your report does say they're statistically significant declines. So uh, what do you think is the significance of that? We're, we're personally on, on, of the view that uh, they, you know, that, that, that politicisation of news and that, that merging of opinion and fact. And can I point out that, in fact, it's about principle number three in the Media Council Statement of Principles, which is the ethical code followed by New Zealand journalists, that uh, comment and fact must be clearly separated. So, you know, I think perhaps there's something in, in for news organisations about, about that. Now, the Media Council's also made a ruling recently that a very long and difficult piece of journalism or complex piece of journalism um, required the interpretation that, that a member of the public, in fact, I think it was a, poli- a former politician, was complaining uh, about uh, a piece that was too comment-ridden. And the Media Council understood that this this lengthy analysis of a very long court case required interpretation, required not, not opinion, but that, that there was an, a, an acceptable amount of interpretation in the piece. So it isn't always easy, you know. I acknowledge that it isn't always easy to separate fact and opinion when you're doing interpretive journalism. And, and for sure... Sure, you know, the longer the piece, generally the more opinions allowed in. So long-form written features often have the opinion of the writer in there. But short-form news is supposed to keep opinion and fact uh, clearly separated for the reader. Um, so maybe news organizations need to just think a little bit about whether they uh, are doing that adequately because this was a very strong message from the audience uh, that, that uh, they see the news as opinion- opinionated, therefore opinions are sneaking into reporting, uh, and that leaves them feeling that it's biased and political. So uh, I think maybe, um, you know, I, we, we can't exactly say why News Hub and News Talk ZB have slipped in, to a, a significant level, but maybe all news organisations need to think about that feedback from the audience. When we looked at the 93 uh, raw comments, uh, which were uh, additional comments for the report, there were specific quotes saying that especially talkback radio has become so politicised and mm. so right-wing. Indeed, but some of those comments are interesting that you pulled out. Someone saying, for example, the problem with the news is it is no longer the news, it's one side of an opinion, and then the other side is being left out of the story. Uh, good, uh, another person says, good, well-written, accurate, factual reporting mm. is hard to find as everything is sanitised, politically corrected or sensationalised for clicks and sales. So these are some of the suspicions mm. or fears that, that people have. But on that specific um, point you mentioned there, specific to, say, News Talk ZB, the Chief executive at NZME, the publisher and the owner, put out a statement early on in the COVID crisis saying, we will publish information you can trust. This is a crisis situation. Rely on us. And yet their hosts on ZB publishing and airing contrarian opinions and actually contradicting even sometimes themselves, switching position. All of this bleeding out into the New Zealand Herald, their sister uh, publication, so amplifying those messages, which, which you know seem to be contrary to what the chief executive was saying there. And yet mm. the, the online scores you get, the Herald Online has the same trust score in your mm. survey as Stuff, which, which yeah. didn't do that. Uh, commercial radio as a whole only marginally less and indeed actually higher trust scores than other online media. For example, uh, the News and Information website newsroom.co.nz is getting a lower trust score than 
commercial radio. So how do we explain that? Uh, can I just say um, the one thing uh, when we're looking at the, the, the scores and those rankings uh, and numbers for the specific news outlets, the brand recognition for some brands are, is not so good. You know, for example, Newsroom and the spin-off are, might, be, uh, might be sitting lower. They're not so well known as a Herald and stuff, for example. So that is one reason, you know, where you want to be a little bit careful when you're looking at the, the, the numbers. But um, what comes to the uh, Herald and stuff, for example, and then what you said about the, the politicization of opinions uh, spread through the NZ and me, I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a bit careful to uh, just pinpoint this problem to one uh, media outlet. I think it's a wider issue. You but know, but you, as, believe, uh, you, you believe clearly that that blurring of opinion and, and comment and, and, and reporting uh, is actually something that the audience has picked up on and, and that you think was reflected in uh, the results you saw this time and those falls in trust as opposed to 12 months earlier? Absolutely, yeah. It's very clear. It comes re- really clearly uh, yeah. from all, all, all you know, the, what we, the comments and the numbers and everything, uh, yeah. So two other fascinating findings in here. Three quarters of people believe the likes of Google and Facebook should do more to separate uh, fake information from legitimate stuff. Also, though, very high concern... Uh, or reported concern when asked about twisted and spun stories. Uh, And then uh, a lot of people either somewhat very or extremely concerned about poor journalism. Now, how seriously did you take that? Yes, I think it genuinely worries them, but I don't know that they're well enough informed to know exactly whether the story's being spun at them or not. So PR has got into news. There's no doubt about that. PR practitioners outnumber journalists by, by horrifying numbers across the West now uh, and and really have a strong influence on the news agenda despite the best efforts of journalists to keep them out. <laughs> um, so I think the public is aware of spin, but I'm not entirely sure that the... and concerned about it, but I'm not entirely sure that... The that journalists and news organisations are entirely transparent enough about their own practices that people can actually be confident uh, in whether they're being spun or not. And so I think rebuilding trust is a massive theme across both um, journalism researchers and journalism practitioners across the West, rebuilding trust. But, you know, when I was a young journalist, we used to shut the door, uh, use gallows humour and joke about about life, you know, we we did not want people to come into the newsroom and see how we operated. We did not want people to see exactly how information is aggregated, uh, selected. Uh, some information is excluded. Stories are, are shaped by the newsroom agenda and all that stuff. Uh, we we sort of weren't very good at being transparent. And I think now news organisations uh, are increasingly conscious, even painstakingly conscious, about being transparent about their news processes. I think that. Um, will help the audience start to be able to pick out the spin from the non-spin. That was Dr Greg Treadwell and Dr Miria Mililati from the Auckland University of Technology's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy, and they're the co-authors of the Trust in New Zealand News report, which was released earlier this week. And you can read more about the key findings in that report and a link to the full report in the online version of the story, where you can also hear more of my chat with the authors Greg and Miria. And you can find all that on the MediaWatch page at rnz.co.nz under the heading, We Have Trust Issues with news media. That's also on our section of the RNZ app or on our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. And while we're talking about news you can trust, 
or not, our news organisations love to report on public opinion about stuff in the news, and often they report the results of surveys that are supplied to them ready-made by polling companies, often commissioned by some organisation or business or other that needs a bit of exposure. But these days the media also do it all for themselves. They ask the audience to feed back to them on issues via social media in response to some question that they've chosen. And when those results are in, that's more content and more talking points that the media can then feed back again to their viewers, listeners and readers, naturally via social media. But is this stuff news we can really use and does it actually reflect public opinion in any meaningful way? Hayden Donnell now runs the numbers and dips Media Watch's toes into the shallow waters of polling your own punters. Two months before the 2020 general election, News Hub reported some ominous news for Jacinda Ardern and the Labour Party. In a story headlined, Poll, Who Would You Prefer as Prime Minister, Judith Collins or Jacinda Ardern? It said 53% of respondents were backing the National Party leader to head the next government. As it turned out, that data might have been a little iffy. Ardern and Labour went on to secure the first outright majority in MMP history, while Nationals' vote dipped to its lowest level since 2002. News Hub's dodgy poll results were sourced entirely from a questionnaire embedded in one of its news stories. It wasn't alone in reporting the results of those kinds of in-house straw polls as if they have some kind of statistical value. This is the AM show's Duncan Garner feeling reassured New Zealanders were on his side after an audience poll backed his calls for the country to close its borders entirely. Are you angry because our borders remain open? Feedback at the amshow.co.nz. That's interesting, isn't it? So Mm. 51% saying angry. Maybe they're angry because we're not going harder. I've been saying this for months. Just temporarily close the border. The Herald also regularly reports on the results of what it calls informal polls carried out on its Facebook page. One recent story asserted that 92% of people were in favour of giving out free period products in schools. Another reported widespread support for banning phones in schools. Some of its online polls don't even get that informal label, though. In March, the paper confidently trumpeted that New Zealanders had sided with the Queen following Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's bombshell Oprah interview. The source for that? A reader survey embedded on the Herald website. A few days later, the Widened Upper Times Age reported that many locals weren't convinced the COVID-19 vaccine is as safe as it's made out to be based on responses to a question it put up on Facebook. And News Hub at Six had this report about what it called a frightening survey of 1,700 landlords, sourced, again, from responses on Facebook. Three quarters of the 1,700 landlords surveyed say they will, or probably will, increase rents. That's to cover what they estimate will be a tax increase of just over $3,000 per property. And all of that extra tax will add up to something like $1.5 billion more for the government coffers. Obviously, this is still all talk, but it shows they're not afraid to gather ammunition in their war with the government over housing. The problem with these types of stories is that many mathematically-minded people believe they are, to use a statistical term, bullshit. The New Zealand Political Polling Code has rules for what constitutes a legitimate poll, including that respondents are randomly selected or selected by quota and that they reflect New Zealand's age, gender and ethnic makeup. It's safe to say a poll sample composed entirely of the people who respond to the Widened Upper Times Ages Facebook page doesn't conform to those standards. Basing a story solely on the opinions of those respondents, particularly on something as important as the COVID-19 vaccine, could be seen as irresponsible. 
The media's tendency to report on these sorts of informal polls has been especially vexing for Stuff's political reporter, Henry Cook. In March, he appealed to the Media Council to issue a ruling against, quote, non-scientific online polls ever being used to show anything ever. Cook went on to add his own online poll to his call with the question, do you agree with me, yes or no? An overwhelming majority, 84%, voted yes. MediaWatch echoed that with its own online poll this week, asking its Twitter audience the question, should media be barred from reporting unscientific social media polls as if they're a measure of public opinion? This generated an even bigger landslide result than Cook's tweet, with 88% of the 842 respondents voting yes. That's a decent number of people. So why is our result statistical hogwash? And in fact, does just knowing it make you dumber? I put those questions to the Auckland University statistician Thomas Lumley. 88% of people are in favour of a ban from a tally of 842 respondents. Now, would you say that result is statistically valid and indicative of public opinion? No. Why not? Because there's no uh, way of estimating how badly off this result, these results can be. So when you've got usual telephone opinion polls, they make some effort to get a representative sample both by selecting people at random and also by having a good idea of what the spread of the population is by things like age and gender and where you live and making sure their sample matches that. But these sorts of polls can be arbitrarily badly wrong. And we can see that because two or three different polls by different media organisations on the same questions, and the answers have differed by 20 to 30 percentage points. But media run these kinds of polls all the time, and they base stories off them all the time. Is that practice wrong? I think it is, yes, because their poll, the survey results don't add anything. In fact, because of something called anchoring bias, it makes it worse. It makes people less informed. So anchoring bias is the idea that when you first start thinking about something, if you hear some number, then you're going to, in the future, compare to that number. But the number is completely uninformative. You can't just discount it that way. And having a value that sort of to pin down your thinking like that makes you less informed. By tweeting what it did, the MediaWatch Twitter account, it actually probably made the population dumber. Yes, or at least it made them less informed about what people actually believe. Uh, I mean, in this case, what you were trying to get them to say is, is, I think, true, but it's not true because it's popular. Is there a sense, though, that this is kind of like no harm, no foul? Some people might get the wrong idea about what the public think about a certain issue, but is that going to have real-world consequences? So this is like the question about is there a problem with newspapers printing horoscopes? You know, in a sense, no, but if you're going to want people to trust you on actual polls, it's not going to help if you start out by giving them a whole lot of things that pretend to be polls but really aren't and behaving as if you believe them. What should be done about this? Should the Media Council issue some sort of directive on the use of these sorts of social media or online polls? I think that would be sensible, yes, because you wouldn't just go out um, on the street and interview half a dozen people and say that that described New Zealand opinion. And I think the Media Council would object if you did. 
here's the scenario. I make you sour of the media tomorrow. You're in control of New Zealand's media. Would they report these sorts of polls again? No. I mean, they aren't the worst thing that happens to the news, but they're something that's fairly clearly bad and shouldn't be that hard to get rid of. That was Hayden Donnell talking to Professor Thomas Lumley, stats expert at the University of Auckland, about the media running the numbers on informal online polls and then reporting them as news. Now, Stuff's Henry Cook may have been joking earlier about taking the issue to the Media Council, but it turns out the Council has been asked to rule in the past on media reporting self-selected online polls like this. But in August last year, it declined to uphold a complaint about News Hub breaching the standards of accuracy, fairness and balance over the preferred Prime Minister poll that Hayden mentioned earlier in his report. Its decision noted that informal polls can be deceptive, but that they can also provide an entertaining and even rough and ready guide as to what people really think. So, Henry Cook... Thomas Lumley and 88% of the 842 Media Watch Twitter followers will have to put up with unscientific polls reported as news by the media for the time being. That's all we have for you this week. We'll be back again, though, with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.